nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Live from Swansea, this is the Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn. Borrowed up how Chrysoe Abatawi. Tonight on The Twilight Show, we're talking building positive teacher-student relationships. It's how to win kids and influence pupils. We look at what neuroscience can tell us about how we are hardwired to help and how these relationships can improve attainment, attendance and behaviour. Tune in, talk it out, off we go. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea and the Twilight Show with me, Nathan Ginn, and it feels really twilighty at the moment. There's a certain time of year where this show really lives up to its name, and I'm looking out the window, I can see the sunset, uh, kind of speckled through clouds. It's the Twilight Show, and we are live. That means you can text in. Uh, if you're listening in the Podbean app, you can tweet us at TT Radio 2022. And of course, you can call in if you've got comments on what we're talking about. Now tonight, as I said, we are talking about building positive teacher-student relationships. And I've been calling it how to win kids and influence people. Uh, we're going to be looking at what the neuroscience can tell us about how we are hardwired to help and how these relationships can improve attainment, attendance and behaviour. So why is it important we put in the effort? Now, we're ta- starting off tonight's show with a few Twitter polls. Now, if you follow us on Twitter, you might have voted on these. There's been a lot of votes coming in. Um, but we asked the question, uh, do you have to like someone to learn from them? Now, this came back with 16% of people saying yes and 84% of people saying no. I don't want to judge people on this, but I'm saying as a teacher, and I'm guessing it's mostly teachers who've answered, as a teacher... Uh, we would like to think that we can do the job, you know, despite our emotions, despite our internal feelings. What's interesting is the sister poll to this, the additional poll was, do you have to like every child to teach them? And the answer to that was a resounding no, with 94% of people who answered it saying that that was not the case. So we believe a little bit we need to like someone to learn from them we do not believe that we have to like someone to teach them now we're going to dig into that a little bit deeper because i think maybe it's the wording of the polls maybe it's the answers we got certainly a lot of people answered it over 200 people each of those polls because people are talking about it now when i asked if people you know do you as a teacher actively try to have good relationships with your students 68% of people said yes they plan for it. So 68% of you as teachers are actively trying to improve or to have 
good relationships with your students. Uh, 12% actually said sometimes, so it's kind of like a little bit bigger, I would guess, in that case. Uh, and there was 20% of people who said no, they're not thinking about it. Maybe they do it naturally, who knows? But there was certainly a lot of people there who are actively trying to do this. Now, when we asked why, we said, what's the most important reason for developing good student-teacher relationships? Overall, in last place was academic aspirations. So seeing them do better in their grades. Just ahead of that was attendance and pastoral issues with 10%. In third place then was behaviour management. 27% of you said that the most important reason for having good student-teacher relationships was it helped you manage behaviour in the classroom. The outright leader, though, and the one that won overall with 55% of the votes said that the reason we needed these good student-teacher relationships was engagement in their learning. And whilst I understand those things are hard to unpick from each other sometimes, it is interesting, at least, that there is a number of people who are saying that they don't need these things in place, but there are a number of teachers who are saying they are actively trying to do it and the reason they are trying to do it is engagement in learning. Now these are just snapshot polls of course and they're from our Twitter account but certainly 432 people voted in just one of those polls alone so it's a fair sample of the, what EduTwitter thinks. Now as I said we are talking about how to win kids and influence pupils. Uh, we've probably all heard of the book how to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, uh, whether in its original form or from the collective pop culture psyche of puns and rehashings. And it was a 1960, uh, 1936 self-help book that sold over 30 million copies worldwide, making it one of the best-selling books of all time. So it's no wonder that that turn of phrase has slipped into my show tonight. I've read a lot of self-help books and I'm no natural at relationships. I have to put a lot of thought into how to relate to people. That's just who I am. I have to try hard at it. Um, American writer and playwright Sinclair Lewis described Carnegie's methods that we'll come on to later and I've based my tips at the end of the show on as teaching people to smile and bob and pretend to be interested in other people's hobbies precisely so that you may screw things out of them. Now I'd probably prefer to paraphrase Doug Lamov who was on another Teachers Talk radio show with Tom Rogers this week who said being able to name things that people find intuitive makes it easier to do for people who don't. And people who don't is me. It is not intuitive to me to build these positive relationships. And as I said, thinking about it helps me. Now, either way, we're a social species in a social profession, or so we say. So let's dig a little bit into why. Now, don't forget, if you've got something to add, you can text in live or you can tweet us or even call in. Let's talk about caveman collabs, collaborations from the dawn of time. When people talk of Darwinian survival of the fittest, it always sounds really cutthroat. Um, it tells us that selfless behaviour, in evolution at least, makes no sense. The altruistic Neanderthal who acts contrary to their own influence, to their own interest, uh, is going to get quickly replaced by a more ruthlessly efficient Homo sapien. And we should surely have systematically eliminated kindness from the species by now if this was the case. 
why does it exist? Why be kind? And this has been a question across our polls and engaging with our listeners on Twitter. We've seen people talking about the, the need to do this because it's the right thing to do. But we're going to dig a little deeper. Why is it the right thing to do? Why does it help us? Because I really want to understand. Now, Edward O. Wilson in The Social Conquest of the Earth argues that a tribe with many members willing to sacrifice themselves for a common goal will often be victorious over all the other less collaborative tribes. Biology, biologists call it um, eusociality. And it's the same with us and the ants and the bees. Uh, we're the rare species that have become genetically hardwired to be part of a team. It's how we've evolved. Don't let TV shows like The Apprentice fool you. Selfish individuals and social loners may win on a small scale, but it's the tribe that shares that survives. Now, casual acquaintances in the animal kingdom are common, but it's only members of the horse family and us higher primates that have actual furry friends. If you've ever watched a flock of seagulls, like I do, scavenging the playground after lunch, then you know they're not the kind of friends you want over for a picnic. A close-knit group within the group can make the difference between society and a herd. In fact, groups within groups is exactly how our society and our schools work. Look around the canteen at lunchtime. We all form these layers from individuals to intimates to friendship groups to the entire society, each providing different levels of social benefit. And we move between them as benefits, not just us as the individual, but as also benefits the different groups as a whole. We're bigger than just ourselves because it helps us to be. Now, I think, you know, if you take a look around the playground, if you take a look around your classrooms, you'll see those different social groups in action and how we move between them. And you have to ask yourself when you see those actions, are those children or adults that you see behaving entirely selfishly or are they being selfless? Are they acting as part of the group for the group benefit? Now, not only that, it appears to be hardwired into our health too. Deborah Umberson and Jennifer Caraz Montez, sociology researchers at the University of Texas, found in 2010 consistent and compelling evidence linking a low quality or a low quantity of social ties with a host of conditions, including heart attacks, high blood pressure, cancer, and even slower healing of wounds. Studies have long shown People who have satisfying relationships have fewer health problems, live longer. In fact, researchers of a nine-year study of 7,000 men and women in 1960s California found that participants with unhealthy lifestyles but close social connections actually lived longer than those with healthy habits but poorer social connections. The participants who were socially disconnected during the nine years of the study were around three times more likely to die than the participants with the strongest ties. It appears the elevated levels of stress and inflammation found in those consistently lacking in social connections can damage nearly every part of the body, including the brain. This can lead to mental health problems too. Emma Seppeler, author of the 2016 book The Happiness Track, makes the link people who feel more connected to others have lower levels of anxiety and depression. We're hardwired for social connection. 
And when we don't have it, we start to fall apart. It goes deeper than just being nice. Unfortunately, it can also be linked to the lives we live. Kiva Sheldon in Bandwidth Recovery goes as far as saying being poor can stress us out. Being stressed out can make us sick. What does all this mean for teachers? Imagine a student who already connects positively with their teacher. They interact positively throughout the lessons and throughout the day. They receive positive guidance and praise rather than criticism and critique. They trust their teacher and are more engaged, better behaved and achieve higher grades. School is a positive place for them and they leave each day more so. This is surely what we want for all our students. But how do we get there? And that's the question we're talking about tonight. Before we do, though, let's hear a little bit from some people who help make all of this happen. We have teamed up with the Witherslack Group to bring you a fantastic face-to-face meetup in Manchester next month. Tickets are free, with lunch included, and you'll be met with a host of amazing speakers. Sign up for Your Voice now at witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash yourvoice2022. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators, Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and well-being in school. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger and many more. There'll be talks, workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to Swansea and tonight on The Twilight Show with me, Nathan Ginn. We're talking about building positive 
teacher-student relationships. It's how to win kids and influence pupils. Uh, we're looking at what the neuroscience can tell us about how we are hardwired to help and how these relationships can improve attainment, attendance and behaviour. Now, a little bit at the start there, we talked about some of the health benefits and some of the history as well and why cavemen uh, needed to work together and the survival of the fittest should really be called the survival of the kindest. Now, we're going to move on to talking about belonging in the classroom. Now, if we're talking about relationships, belonging is an important part of it. And research by Freeman, Anderman and Jensen in 2007 found associations between student sense of class belonging and their academic self-efficacy, intrinsic motivation and their task value. Bronwyn Becker and Sanaya Luther from the Columbia University also found this especially important for students coming from ethnic minority and lower socio-economic backgrounds. Most famously, though, it's Maslow of the hierarchy fame found individuals must satisfy their lower level needs of food, water and safety before progressing to meet those higher level growth needs that we're looking for from education. It's commonly held up by teacher trainers and pop psychologists, although he did later clarify his famous pyramid had given the false impression that a need must be 100% satisfied before the next need emerges. What does Maslow's admission mean for us here? We can use the term school liking to describe when students' perceptions of school are mostly positive. We have to then accept that everyone has ups and downs. Most children will dislike some aspect of school, a subject, an issue, or an individual at some point in their time, but it passes or changes without major issue. And I think if we reflect and think about our own experiences, and you can text in and call in to share yours, there's gonna be times where we dislike a little bit of school. However, school disliking is a much more complex issue. It can arise from academic difficulties, friendship issues, or a particular problem with a member of staff. It can snowball and it encompass the whole educational experience so that the child ends up disliking school completely. Kevin McGrath and Penny V. Bergen in 2015 found students at risk of experience a negative student-teacher relationship by virtue of behavioural difficulties or negative attachment history or just demographic status or other, having a positive relationship with the teacher was a powerful buffer. Professor Maureen Hallinan, PhD, Director of the Centre for Research on Educational Opportunity at the University of Notre Dame in 2008, found students who like school have higher academic achievement and lower incidence of disciplinary problems, absenteeism, truancy, and dropping out of school than do those who dislike school. This one way to improve academic outcomes is to increase students' attraction to school. The unique role that teachers play relative to the students and the kinds of experiences that teachers create for students suggest that teachers may exert a powerful influence on whether students like school. Since the attachment to school uh, has been shown to affect students' academic performance, identifying the characteristics of teachers that have a positive effect on students' feelings about school is one way to increase their academic achievement. 
It also found that students who perceive that their teachers care about them, respect them and praise them are more apt to like school than those who don't. But that teachers' expectations for students' achievements have a negligible effect on whether students like school. Making them belong or making them feel like they belong in the classroom can improve their liking of school. So that's our first thing. And we'll feed that back in when we come. And certainly with some of the comments that we've had in on Twitter, people are saying and echoing that important part that teachers play in making children like school. We have to be active and we have to make an effort to do it. And 64% of you said in our polls that you are actively trying to engage in making children um, feel positive about their relationship with you as the teacher. So we'll move on to connectedness then. We've settled them into the room. What about connectiveness in the classroom? It's often said that relationships are everywhere. Learning is hard work and it's happening to our students' brains every moment of every lesson of every day. And that same grey matter is also working hard to navigate the social interactions of not just their peers, but also their teachers. Given the frequency throughout the day of teacher-student interactions, it's probably not surprising that Deborah Rauder et al. of the University of Amsterdam in 2013 found a close and supportive student-teacher relationships predict students' liking for school. Professor Hallahan and the University of Notre Dame again said in 2008, they found that students who perceive that their teachers care about them and respect them and praise them are more apt to like school than those who don't. And this gives us some keys about how to get students to like school, which is the first step on our chain of building those positive teacher-student relationships. To complete our loop of connectedness, Catherine Monaghan et al. in 2010 found that teacher-student relationships quality also strongly predicts students' connectedness to the school, which is itself then linked to further positive student outcomes and in itself act as a buffer against other risks. Patricia Phelan and Locke Davidson uh, in 1992 spent a year studying 54 high school students to understand their perspectives on school. In the study, a repeated from these students was the importance of having a caring and approachable teacher who provides written feedback, one-to-one -one assistance, and who is interested in the students' lives outside school. Now, as we move through, we're gonna pick those parts apart even more to really dig down into what we can do as teachers to help build these positive relationships. We assume that when a student feels supported and cared for, they would be more likely to engage in learning and have better academic outcomes and have fewer behavioral problems. To the teacher, it may feel like there is something that changes in the classroom when the students feel safe and understood. It's neuroscience that tells us that this change is actually occurring via chemicals in our students' brain. First one is the happy hormone, dopamine. Each and every strong relationship is built on hundreds of smaller positive interactions. Each of these leaves its own imprint chemically on the brain through the release of dopamine. This makes the students feel good and it motivates them to feel that way again. The newly found motivation helps them spend more time on task 
and improving their skills. This leads you, as the teacher, to give more praise. And you feel good about doing it too. So the dopamine praise cycle starts again for both you and the student. You probably already know this feeling of when a lesson is going really well. You and the students leave on a high. Literally, it's a spiral of a dopamine highs. Unfortunately, this also means that when students don't receive these positive hits of dopamine-laced feedback, they're less likely to join the upward spiral of motivation and learning. In a meta-analysis of teacher-student relationships, Roder, Kuhlman and Split and Ort in 2011 found the strongest positive effects in the higher grades of school, but the effects of these negative relationships were stronger in primary schools. Trapped with a teacher you don't like all day can have a disastrously damaging effect. Let's talk about the man in the mirror. How the pupils look at us. We spend a whole lot of time with our students. The younger and more impressionable they are, the more time we spend. Research supports the important role that early relationships play in shaping young children's social skills and behaviour, and that includes their teachers. Spend any time with a toddler, you'll find out that humans are great mimics. Whether we like to think it or not, our students are mirroring our behaviours. More amazingly, neuroscience studies have shown that when people observe an action being performed, it activates some of the same neural pathways that would be active if they'd performed the action themselves. This is the mirror neuron system. Our brains practice the action that we're seeing without us even moving. We intrinsically know modeling is important as teaching. Research shows when we see something performed, we're able to learn it quicker than if we'd not seen it at all. Now, there is your next excuse for watching sports on the sofa. You're not lazing around, you're using your mirror neuron system to learn a new sport. It's also true of emotions. When we see someone get hurt, we process pain. Try smiling at a stranger and watch them smile back. And if they don't smile at you, I guarantee they're more likely to smile at the next person they see. Let's use that. Please, miss, let's talk about pleasing our teachers. Maybe you're the kind of person who, at school, loved to get that positive dopamine hit from your teacher praising you. Well, in 1995, Gregory Montalevo and Teresa O'Dell conducted a series of focus groups on high school students to try and understand the concept of pleasing the teachers. The goal was to find out from the interviews why student-pleasing teacher changed depending on the teacher. Now I can see, joining the chat there, Chris Wilson. Good afternoon, host. It's Nathan Ginn here, Twilight Show, Teachers Talk Radio. Feel free to message in. If you were a teacher pleaser, Chris, let us know. Or maybe you had a favourite teacher who managed to do this for you. Now, in their research, they found a number of similar characteristics in teachers whom students wanted to please. Those interviews interviewed reported that their favourite teacher had either gone out of their way to help them, provided confidence-building feedback, or done unnecessary things to be nice. Maybe they'd respected or trusted the students, 
or they'd spaced out the workload so that the students didn't feel overwhelmed. The researchers also found that when the students liked the teacher, their effort and quality of work improved. So here we go. If you want them to want to please you, you've got to go out of your way to help them, build their confidence, respect and trust them, and don't overwhelm them. At least that's what neuroscience tells us. But as a warning, when they disliked the teacher, their effort and the quality of their work lessened. What about getting on the same track? Lots of you in your tweets and messages have said you've got to know the students to understand what they like and what they dislike. And now whilst when I trained in a time where we were writing planning based around what the children liked, I found it incredibly difficult. Maybe you did too. Planning would end up often focused on football for the boys or dinosaurs or computer games. And I can't tell you the number of lessons that I had to teach around the theme of Minecraft when it first became popular. Making it about them works too. Neural pathways are created by connecting old information to new. Tapping into students' lives, likes and hobbies helps activate neural pathways in their brains that already exist. So if you're talking, taking them off the beaten track, you're best placed if you're starting on a track they're already familiar with. And that means getting to know your students. A metaphor is only as strong as the person's understanding of its context. So we've got to explain using something they already understand and then watch those neural pathways turn into superhighways. Knowing a student's interests can help you create examples that match those interests. But don't try and be down with the kids. Positive relationships encourage students' motivation and engagement in learning, but with older students, they need to feel that their teacher respects their opinions and wants to, and they want to give that respect back. Even when teenagers don't appear to care about what the teachers do or say, the teacher interactions do matter and even have long-term positive or negative consequences than you think. And in some of those tweets, if you're following us on Teachers Talk Radio, you'll see some of the horror stories about what teachers have said to people. And maybe you want to share some of yours. If you're listening live, you can still join that thread. You can still tweet us in in the studio. Did a teacher say something to you that stuck with you forever? Because personally, I'm of the opinion that one phrase or one word can damage that relationship to a point where you no longer trust them. While we're talking about trust, we need to talk about the trust molecule, as it's called. We're talking about that warm, fuzzy feeling when you feel good about someone or something. And it's a single molecule and it's called oxytocin. It's the trust molecule. Researcher Paul Zak suggests that humans battle these two urges, the collaborative urge to be open and trusting, and the cautious urge to be hesitant and protect ourselves. And this goes all the way back to those cavemen we started talking about at the start of the show, right up to the students you're facing in the classroom. 
Oxytocin is a hormone that balances these conflicting behaviours. The more you feel connected to someone, the more oxytocin your bod- you probably have washing around your body. Oxytocin also makes you better at reading people. In one study, participants were given oxytocin were better at interpreting subtle social clues from the eyes and guessing what the person in the photograph might be thinking or feeling. Better your people skills, the more oxytocin you produce, the deeper your connections with the people are. It's like dopamine that again we talked about earlier. Oxytocin generates the empathy that drives our moral behaviour and that inspires the trust, which causes the release of more oxytocin, which creates more empathy, and it's called the virtuous cycle. We already know how humans care about each other. If you see someone in distress, your brain releases oxytocin to move you to help them. If you see someone fall, without thinking, you reach out your hand. We can't help but help. Our survival as a species depends on it, and we are hardwired to work together. So in the classroom, why fight it? Maybe some of these ways, and some of the ways that you guys are sharing with us on Twitter, have helped to help. We can see it internationally as well. In economies with more trust, there's a higher gross domestic product, which is the total value of goods and services produced, and it increases. When we do it together, we do more. Caring about each other in that way, and we will positively interact with each other in social situations, we talk about social safety. That's when our body's releasing the hormone oxytocin and we feel a closeness. When our students feel psychologically safe, they're more likely to engage in our lessons. And it's the oxytocin that creates a class of open discussion, questions, resilience and kindness. Students who attend maths classrooms with higher emotional support reported increased engagement in mathematics learning. For instance, research from Rim Kaufman, Baroudi, Larson and Kirby in 2014 found fifth grade students learning mathematics in classrooms with higher emotional support reported higher cognitive emotional and social engagement but here's our word of warning it's not always that easy having lower levels of oxytocin could mean less protection and adaptability trauma Chronic stress in the student's life can cause them to feel threatened in situations that other students find harmless. The brain learns that the environment is not safe and remains alert to potential danger. When we perceive a threat, a region of the brain called the amygdala sets off a biological alarm releasing cortisol, and that's the stress hormone. Also releases adrenaline. So now it's fight, flight, or freeze. Its job is to keep us safe and alive, but we're no longer an animal in the sight of a hungry predator. We're a child in the classroom. We feel a surge of energy, our heartbeat quickens, our muscles tense. It's not a place where learning can happen, only survival. And it's the opposite of the psychological safety that we were looking for. Now trauma, especially early trauma, 
can lead to increased rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, post-traumatic stress disorder. But that's not all. Continues to impact your physical health years after the traumas occurred. And Dr. Lena Velikova, medical advisor at Supplement 101, called this early trauma decreases the oxytocin levels in the brain and it affects the receptors in childhood and in later life. That means trauma, if not addressed, can inhibit our ability to make positive connections. Our brain, our body has learned to shut down. And it's shutting down the production of this trust hormone. Because in our experience, people can't be trusted. It's the natural reaction of our body trying to protect us. And it's fight, flight or freeze. Now I'm going to read through a list of what this looks like and I want you to reflect on your classroom and if you've seen these behaviours. And we need to consider where these behaviours are coming from. So it might look like work avoidance. It might look like heads down or hoods up. It might look like refusing to engage or talk. Or it could look like becoming aggressive, walking out of the classroom, shouting or yelling insults. All of these things are natural reactions to being in a dangerous situation. They're just not useful in the classroom. So we need to consider then as teachers, and when we're talking about building positive relationships between teachers and students, we need to consider building psychological safety and that it may be more challenging with these students. But that's even more reason to try. The oxytocin that your positive connections produces helps quieten down the amygdala's threat detection system. Yet, in inverted commas, difficult students may require more energy on your part. But over time, in a safe and trusting environment, their threat detection system will have a chance to recalibrate and they'll hopefully be better able to learn. Now, research by Anne Gregory and Michael Ripsky in 2008 examined interviews with 32 teachers and 32 discipline-referred students, and it found that teachers could earn that trust and cooperation of their student if they used relationship building to prevent discipline problems first. And this all thanks to the power of that trust molecule, oxytocin. There we go. Now, through some of the comments that we've had on Twitter, and it's been great reading them as they come in. And if you're listening live, don't forget you can text into the studio as well and even call in if you've got something to add. But one of the things that came up as something that we should all be doing, and I have reservations, I have questions about this, but one of the things that was brought up was the idea of unconditional positive regard to help us in building those positive teacher-student relationships. And on the surface, I do buy into this, but if you have your questions, fire them away. Now, unconditional positive regard is a term used by the humanist psychologist Carl Rogers. According to Rogers, unconditional positive regard involves showing complete support and acceptance of a person, no matter what that person says or does. So 
1957, he published an article in the Journal of Consulting Psychology and he explained it means caring for the client as a separate person with permission to have his own or feelings or his own experiences. Now, teachers who have negative relationships with a student can become frustrated, irritable, angry. We can, you know, with the best will in the world feel that against the student and we can even sometimes show it now we've been there at some point all of us we've got our own personal triggers and i do think that's really important uh, that we're aware of those and you talk about those openly with your teams particularly if you're working in challenging environments what is it that makes you not able to maintain at least some kind of unconditional positive regard. And without meaning to, we may show that negativity through our words, our expressions, our body language. Sometimes it might be to a class, sometimes to an individual. We just can't seem to connect to them. We can't start that positive cycle we've been talking about earlier on. We can't get the oxytocin flowing. We can't get the dopamine flowing. We can't build those connections that we are hardwired to need as human beings. Now, researcher Gary Ladd and Kim Burgess in 2001 found that liking for school played an important role in very young children's, we're talking about toddlers here, adjustment to school when they first started. But in their analysis, when conducted by ethnic group, they found that children from minority backgrounds were more, most or more likely to experience not only the additional stresses of peer rejection, but also they were less likely to have the support of a stable teacher-student relationship. We need to be more proactively positive as the professional in the room. And we need to be aware of those biases. And we need to be aware of our triggers. Now, when we come back for the news, I want to read through some of your tips. So far away, obviously, I'll be reading from the top to the bottom. So if you want to get them in quickly, uh, very likely I'll read them out if you're listening live as well. But when we come back, I'm going to talk about how to win kids and influence pupils. And I'm going to be talking about my top tips for actually doing that. We're going to hopefully give you some useful advice something you can act upon uh, so we'll see you on the other side of the news we have teamed up with the witherslack group to bring you a fantastic face-to-face meetup in manchester next month Tickets are free, with lunch included, and you'll be met with a host of amazing speakers. Sign up for Your Voice now at witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash yourvoice2022. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators, Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and well-being in school. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger and many more. There'll be talks, workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch and all the refreshments. 
You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Friday the 14th of October saw many schools mark Restart a Heart Day 2022. In Yorkshire, thousands of children across the county took part in events, learning vital life-saving skills. The Yorkshire Ambulance Service ran events designed to improve cardiac arrest survival rates, visiting 136 secondary schools and training more than 30,000 students. A spokesman for the service said that since the launch of the programme in 2014, bystander CPR rates in Yorkshire have increased from 39.9 to 74.9%. Across all four home nations, the British Heart Foundation and the Resuscitation Council UK have worked with a range of partners to ensure that more and more people can learn how to save a life. The official restart of Heart Day was the 16th of October 2022. The I newspaper reports on news that the UK's largest teaching union, the NEU, has announced that it will hold a formal ballot for strike action, with a timetable for potential walkouts to be announced in the next few days. The union represents more than 450,000 teaching staff across the country and said it would move ahead with proceedings after it said the government had failed to respond to its calls for an above inflation pay rise for teachers. A preliminary ballot showed that 98% support a pay rise above the current inflation rate of 10%. The government has offered a rise of 5% for most teachers. The ballot also showed that 86% of teacher members said they were willing to take strike action. The NESUWT has also announced that it will pursue strike action over pay. FE Week focuses on criticism of of exam board decisions to raise fees by up to 17%. It says that schools and colleges face having to pay out tens of thousands of pounds more in GCSE and A-level fees. Exam boards at Excel and OCR have raised fees for all 2023 exams by 6%, whilst England's largest exam board, AQA, has hiked prices by between 5 and 17%. AQA remains the board with the lowest prices overall. Exam boards say they need to hike prices in order to cover costs, while school leaders say the rises are inappropriate at a time when school leaders battle with rising energy and staffing costs. Comments from all boards indicate that whilst they understand schools and colleges are stretched, they try to offer as much value for money as possible and try to keep fees low. 
In Jersey, the government has pledged to expand its school meal programme to all public primary schools if the £1.6 million funding plan is approved by ministers. The money will be used to create new facilities to store and serve meals, as well as food itself. Chief Minister Deputy Christina Moore says the plan shows government commitment to supporting children and families, especially as the cost of living crisis continues. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at keeping your phone charged should power cuts be introduced. Coming home to no power between 4 and 7pm may be something we have to learn to live with as the winter approaches. We can live without most things, however, for most, our mobile phone is the main point of contact. With being in work all day and no means of charging once home, will your phone last that extra bit of time? Before I begin, this is not an advert, so there'll be no brand names mentioned just to look at the technology available to extend the uptime of your phone to keep you connected with your friends and family. The power bank is the obvious choice for extending the charge of your phone. They've come on a lot since they were first introduced. When buying, consider the technology your phone has. If it has an induction charger, meaning you just put your phone on a pad to charge, there are rechargeable induction chargers available. They're like a little backpack for your phone. They come with a stick-on magnet or will connect via an existing magnetic connection if you should have one built in. They can allow simple and secure connections to the charge. Just be aware, some magnetic connections are weakened by the type of case you have on your phone. If you want something more multi-purpose, there are several other types of power bank available. Some double up as torches and hand warmers. However, if you spent the day keeping your hands warm, there won't be much left for you to charge your phone at the end of the day. The next thing to consider while you're making your choices is the capacity of the charge they can hold. This is measured in MAH or milliamp hours. The bigger the number, the more charge it will hold and therefore the longer it will last before recharging. Usually this relates to the cost and also the overall size and weight of the device. To give an example, a 2000 milliamp hour battery will provide approximately twice the charging time as a 1000 milliamp hour battery. Basically what I'm saying is, if you're wanting to charge your device several times throughout the day, then you'll want a large milliamp hour capacity. Finally, if you're going to use a power bank, remember they take time to charge too. So make sure you get into a routine so you're not caught out. Do you already have a power bank? I'd love to hear from you. Why not tell us at TT Radio 2022? I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea and the Twilight Show with me, Nathan Ginn. Um, we're even joined by uh, listeners from all over the world and I've just seen in there that it looks like uh, we've got Chris joining us from the US of A um, and it is exciting to share some of this information because I think, you know, as we've heard in the first half of the show, humans are humans and some of this stuff when we're talking about the happy hormone dopamine or the trust hormone oxytocin or even those things that we want to avoid in the classroom of cortisol and adrenaline 
Uh, it's human nature. And so we are talking building positive teacher-student relationships. It's how to win kids and influence pupils. And we're looking at the neuroscience can tell us about how we're hardwired to help and how those relationships can improve attainment, attendance and behaviour. And that is what we saw in the first half of the show. When we looked through the evidence, we looked through the research and we shared some of those examples together of how a student who trusts their teacher, how a student who feels psychologically safe in their classroom and how a student who feels like they uh, belong does better, whether that be in their behavior, whether that be in their attendance, or whether that be actually even in their academic attainment. Although, as I said earlier, um, some of those things are kind of interlinked in, you know, with each other, so hard to unpick. Now, we are Teachers Talk Radio, and we're going to share some of the messages that you guys have um, sent in to us uh, on this topic. Now, we've had a message here from Miss Beryl who says, I acknowledge every student, smile on the corridor and ask them how they are today, what they're doing at the weekend. I compliment new haircuts, nice bag, shoes, glasses. I give them my time during the break and lunch and if they need to offload or ask for advice. And it sounds like, whether planned or not, that we've got we are hitting some of those oxytocin trust building uh, molecules. And we know from the research we shared from uh, Gregory Montalevo and Teresa Rodell, that if you go out of your way to help, if you um, do nice things for them, then that builds that positive relationship. And we also know that saying nice things gives them that dopamine hit that allows them to form a positive spiral that pleases you, that pleases them. And we know the mirror neurons activate in both of us, the uh, observer of the action as well as the one doing the action. So I think that's some great advice from one of our listeners there. We've also got Louise Clifford, who's messaged in saying, hello, say hello, sorry, say she is saying, say hello and keep saying hello. Praise and keep praising. But not necessarily in front of their peers. It depends on the culture. I think that's probably very true and something you have to be very careful about with teenagers and particularly when we talk about trauma-informed practice with teenagers because we talked about the difficulty of not knowing, particularly if a child is in a heightened state, whether we will trigger a fight or flight or whether through their own personal history they have built a distrust for adults and what they are saying. We also saw that we can overcome that. Let's hear a couple more. Um, we've got Richard Singleton who said, talk to them like they're a human being, be open and real, give them a little piece of you, just be nice and humour helps too. Well, again, our research that we heard earlier in the show backs that up. When we see one person laughing, we naturally laugh. There is a human connection that we cannot help and we are hardwired for that gets us into these dopamine spirals of heading up. A couple more before we uh, move on to my personal top tips. Vision and Values uh, tweeted in saying, be interested in each of them as a unique individual. Know them by name. Spend time discovering their strengths and their hopes. And Education Soup said, Teach them well, deal with disruption, show you care, 
is pretty much a good summary. I'd love to hear your thoughts. A lot of people have come back on this with us saying that actually, if you just do your job well and you provide safety, and I would include in that psychological safety, if you provide safety, then they will learn better. And whichever side of the progressive trad debate that you get into, I think we all agree that children who feel safe and secure not in that fight or flight mode for whatever reason, whether it be the teacher's behaviour or their classmates' behaviour, we know that they learn better. I think some of the way of how we get there sometimes causes the debate. So I'd love to hear from you as we go through my top tips for how to win kids and influence pupils. Remember that tweeting address, you find us at Teachers Talk Radio, which is on Twitter at TT Radio 2022. You can message live in the studio, of course, and if you want to call in, call in and share your thoughts. So here we go. They're framed for anyone listening or who hasn't read the book of um, how to win friends and influence people. They're framed in the same structure as the book. Uh, Mimicry. We talked about it earlier. Humans and natural mimics. So techniques for all pupils. Number one from me, don't criticize, condemn or complain. We need to stay out of that fear. We need to stay out of that cortisol and that adrenaline flowing from the amygdala. And we want to stay in the trust hormones of oxytocin and the happy hormones of dopamine. So we're going to try in a responsible adult way to not criticize, condemn or complain. And some of that, of course, as well, is not letting our own personal uh, prejudices and biases flow out of us. Humans are very good at reading each other, whether we know it or not, and it can break down those positive things you're trying to build through connections in the classroom. Number two, give honest and sincere appreciation. How many of the tweets that we've seen coming in have said, say thank you, hold doors, be kind, be polite. Those small interactions over time are what build a culture of kindness in the classroom, And we expect it from pupils to each other. So I think we can expect it from ourselves to them as well. Our final one in this section of my free techniques for all pupils that we should all be doing all of the time is to create a want to do well. Now, when we talked in the section earlier of please miss and how the research into how pleasing the teacher behaviours We need to create that. And by doing these other two steps, we are on our way to creating that want to do well. I think we have to remember, though, whether or not we are doing this for those stated reasons of, and I have been accused, maybe, and maybe some of you would throw this into the chat now. I've been accused a little like Sinclair Lewis said of Carnegie's methods when he wrote the book that my approach to this is to smile and bob and pretend to be interested in other people's hobbies precisely so that you can screw them out of things. Well, I think if our goal is noble and positive, then, you know, I think I would argue any of you to the wall about about that. I'd appreciate the chance. So complain to me if you think I'm being too uh, behaviorist about this. Now, next step on it is my six ways to make a pupil like you. Now, some of these are come in through the tweets as well, but some of them are, of course, based on our how to win kids and influence pupils. Number one, be genuinely interested in the pupil. 
We know that by asking them about their lives, by getting them to say yes first, by getting them to share, we create that back and forth. We also know that building our metaphors, building our learning around a pupil's understanding helps us teach them. You can't get there without actually being interested in the pupil. And that does have to be genuine interest because otherwise they can read it and they start to see ulterior motives and that starts undermining those positive cycles we're starting to do. Number two, smile. Remember when we were talking about mirror neurons? Remember when we were talking about sitting on the sofa, watching football actually in some small way prepares you for playing football? That's how our brains work. We see it, our brain practices it. Smiling is very similar. When someone smiles at you, you smile back and it is a natural phenomenon. In fact, if you're sat somewhere with a pen right now, if you try and put that pen in your mouth, Oh, I've done it on the radio, but I have a pen in my mouth, sideways on, forcing myself to smile. It makes you happier. Right. Smiling helps. Number three, remember that the person's name is the person's sweetest and most important sound in any language. Now, many of our tweets that came in said you learn their names and call them by their names. A human connection starts there. And it's an important thing to remember. Now, harder, admittedly, much harder in secondary school, particularly if you have a number of classes, but it is not undoable. And the investment that you make in it will certainly be paid back to you, not only in their attainment, but their attendance and their behavior for you in class. Number four, from my list, is be a good listener. Now, encourage the pupils to talk about themselves. If you can get them to do the work, if you can get them to open up, the more they share, the more the oxytocin flows, the more they trust. And that back and forth continues. And we know that in a trusting classroom, we see higher results. Number five ties into number three, but it's talk in terms of the pupils' interests. And I'm not advocating for planning just only to pupils interests i do not want to go back to a time and correct me if i'm wrong you can message in call in and shoot me down that you would love to see a hundred maths lessons based around um i've forgotten what the game's called any computer game um minecraft a hundred maths lessons based around minecraft but it helps with metaphors and it certainly helps to explain so take an interest and talk in terms of their interests. And the final one, number six, is make the pupils feel important, but do it sincerely. And this is the hardest part. Now, many of these, many of these steps that we're talking through are talking about starting a spiral, but that spiral has to start somewhere. And we know the old chicken and the egg. Now, I would always argue that you as the adult in the room are the one that is responsible for starting that cycle. And it can be incredibly hard, depending on the children that you work with. And as someone who works with children with significant social, emotional, and behavioral difficulties, we have to accept our part in the cycle. And we have to reflect on the times that it is hard, but we also have to respect that we are being paid to do it. And to do it well, we have to start that cycle. And whether you want to or not, once you start the cycle of dopamine and oxytocin and trust, 
you will start liking the pupils, whether you want to or not. Now, if you are feeling a little more Machiavellian, my next tips are based on how to win pupils to your way of thinking. And we've got 12 here as we go through, and some of them are mirrored in the tweets that we have seen coming in from you listeners. And we'll hopefully have time to share some more of those as we get to the end. But if you are looking to win over those pupils, a difficult child, one that you maybe aren't currently, what do they say, I'm vibing with, if you currently don't get on with or is presenting a challenge behaviourally in your class, reflect on, are you already in a negative spiral of cortisol and adrenaline? When you see that child walk into your classroom door, does your heart start pumping? Do your muscles tense up? If so, I'd argue that you, as the teacher, are in fight or flight, and we need to do something for you. So, here are my uh, tips for winning over those students to your way of thinking. Now, number one, the only way to get the best of an argument is to avoid it. Try not to get into arguments. In fact, we know from neuroscience that getting someone to say yes quickly um, helps them say yes again. So try and avoid direct conflict. It is only going to put people into both yourself and the students into fight, flight or freeze. And then you are on an uphill battle to increase learning. You may subdue them, but the research suggests that that's not the same as having them quietly learning. Number two, show respect for the pupils' opinions and never say you're wrong. It's part of this not directly challenging. They have a feeling and part of our um, unconditional positive regard, they have a feeling and feelings are valid. We just need to talk them through it. Number three, if you're wrong, admit it quickly and emphatically. There is no saving face in front of teenagers. I think if you own it and you admit it, you will move on far quicker. Number four, and I see this one a lot when people are dealing, particularly when they go in to a challenging situation. So I'm imagining a middle leader here. I'm imagining someone on call. I'm imagining someone who is having to step in to help a colleague. Start in a friendly way. If you start the positive spiral, the upward spiral, and I'm not saying start by complimenting them, although that possibly could work, but start certainly thinking about not threatening, not putting the cortisol levels up, the adrenal levels up. We start in a friendly way, then we are already on a path to positive as opposed to negative outcomes for, for all of us. Number five, get the pupil saying yes immediately. We've talked about this already. If the first word that comes out of their mouth when they talk to you, and I think they put this on uh, when you see The Apprentice or when you say see them sales pitches, but when you say yes first out of your mouth and you get them saying yes, you immediately, again, get them agreeing with you, get them being positive. Number six is let the pupil do the talking. Listen and listen to them because it builds trust, it builds oxytocin levels, it allows them their chance. And then if you need to uh, change direction a little bit later on, you change it with them rather than against them. 
leads us on to number seven, which is let the pupil feel the idea is his or hers. And while some people might consider this manipulative, it's helpful and it eventually helps the student. Our number eight on the list is to uh, try to honestly see things from the pupil's point of view. Our number nine, be sympathetic with the pupil's ideas and desires. And number 10 is to appeal to their nobler motives. Let's hear a couple of your thoughts. If you're in the studio, you can text them in. How do you deal with a challenging pupil without damaging the relationship? Because that is what our next 10 points are for. Now, we're going to talk through some of the tweets that are coming in about this topic. And I have to say, it has kind of divided in places and it's worth reflecting on the why as well as the how, because when we talk about why we actively do it, we had a couple of comments in that said people should do it to be uplifting for the students. We should do it in a more uh, moral purpose, that we should do it because it is a positive thing to do, because it's the right thing to do. Now, I do wonder if uh, some of these comments that people had from teachers, though, were in that vein. We've had comments in that said things such as, when I spoke to uh, a teacher said to me um, that they would never do well. We've had comments coming in that, that people were university fodder or don't they will never amount to anything or she's great but she's so quiet or he has a talent for making people laugh but should remember not to try and do this all the time. Harsh comments that stick with us. So we're faced with a challenging pupil. We want to challenge them or we want to change their behaviour, but we don't want to give offence. We don't want to cause resentment. We don't want to start this cortisol spike and adrenaline spiral from the amygdala, sending them down a negative path or flight, fight, flight or freeze. So here are my tips based on what's come in and based on the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which we're calling How to Win Kids and Influence Pupils. Number one, begin with praise and honest appreciation. You can start a conversation with a yes, like we've said before, with a win, and you can start it in a way that starts that positive spiral, whether it be the happy hormone of dopamine, of hearing, that positive praise or some honest appreciation that builds that trust and oxytocin levels. Our next step then is we call to attention the pupil's mistake indirectly. Remember, we don't want direct conflict. If we're going to build positive relationships, we don't want aggressive challenge. And we are talking about a part of the brain that existed so far back. You know, we're talking about positive relationships and realistically this only exists in the horse family and the higher primates but if you imagine that gorilla that great ape direct challenge is what we want to avoid because it destroys trust and it, it 
uh, creates a negative spiral. So to do this and talk about it indirectly, we can take we can talk about our own mistakes first before giving the feedback on theirs. It creates a feeling of safety, particularly that psychological safety we're looking for. Our next step then is to ask questions instead of giving orders. Now, I don't mean this in the uh, way that we sometimes find it in class, which is, uh, I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, maybe you can help me out here if you're listening. Um, oh, I say, are you going to close the door? That is, that's not a question. That That's a direct order framed as a question. But I mean, honest and open questioning by asking about what's happened, asking about what has um, caused the uh, conflict that we are trying to resolve. Our number five top tip for dealing with how to challenge pupils without giving offence or creating resentment is let the pupil save face, okay? Within reason, without undermining you as a teacher, you do not need to embarrass. Embarrassment leads to fear. I'm starting to sound like Yoda. Um, but it causes, you know, it is a threat and it is damaging to our trust and it creates a trauma that, that the child may hang on to. We do not need to insult or upset for the sake of doing it. And where we can, as the bigger person, literally, if you're working in a primary school, maybe less so if you're a secondary school teacher, as the bigger person, we can allow them to save face and to not be embarrassed. Our next step is to whence once they start to make those changes, is to praise even the slightest improvement. Now, we talked at the start when we were talking about the neuroscience behind this, that we were looking to get into a dopamine spiral, okay? Remember, we praise an improvement, they get a hit of dopamine, they start to improve more, they're more on task, so they improve quicker, which makes us pleased, we get a dopamine hit, we praise them more because we're happy, they get a dopamine hit, we spiral, we spiral. So that's what we're looking for. So start praising the slightest improvement and then praise every improvement. And you will find that not only your relationship with them improves, but also their relationship with their work improves. Of course, we've talked about how with teenagers, it is a slightly different approach. And part of that is giving them a high and a fine reputation to live up to. When we talk about mirror neurons, when we talk about um, us modelling behaviour, which teachers are very clear on modelling, we can use that to our advantage by expressing the um, modelling and what we expect of them. We need to use encouragement, of course. Mistakes are easy to correct often or at least some of the mistakes that sometimes can damage the relationships or feel like nagging with teachers. So we can encourage them to do better. And that encouragement continues us on the positive spiral. And our final point then is we need to, in some way, make the pupil happy about doing the thing that we want them to do or doing the thing that we suggest. And of course, our most powerful tools in that are the praise we've talked about, are the hits of dopamine by praising them when they do the thing and cycling it back for your praise to their praise to their improvement. But if they are not happy about what they are doing in some form, they will not continue that behavior and they will not do it again. And they will not start doing some of those teacher pleasing behaviors that we talked about in the research earlier. Now those throughout all are my how to 
WinKids and uh, I've forgotten what the and influence pupils. We had techniques for all pupils. We had six ways to make a pupil like you. We had how to win pupils to your way of thinking and in the final there we had how to challenge pupils without giving offense or creating resentment now i know you know i can hear the screams of it uh through the twitter and through some of our conversations online you know why should we do this is it more than our job well i want to talk uh, just as we come to the end about selfish selflessness as i'm calling it now why should you do it? Well, do it for yourself, if not for the kids, because studies have shown that altruism is good for your emotional well-being and can measurably enhance your peace of mind. If you're looking for something more measurable, in the famous words of Justin Timberlake, what goes around comes around, and more biblically, you reap what you sow. So from a neuroscience point of view, the act of giving activates the area of the brain associated with positive feelings and relieving stress. And as we've already seen, that brings health benefits as well. We talked about being hardwired to feel good and we talked about long-term stress and long-term trauma damaging us and making us more likely to not only heart attacks, not only high blood pressure, but also it slows the healing of wounds. Quite literally, you heal slower if uh, you are stressed. So, positive for you and more selfish selflessness well if you want to work in a calm and safe and supportive environment your enemies are cortisol and adrenaline and the amygdala if you want your students to show resilience and independence and a positive get up and go then your friendly friends are the warm and fuzzy feelings of oxytocin and dopamine so if working in a school like that doesn't sound like a selfish reason for selflessness, then I don't know what is. But you need to start that upward spiral of positive social connections in class. And as Gandhi said, you need to be the change you want to see in the world. Now we're coming to the end. And I just wanted to finish off with just a few more of our tweets and tips that have come in because it has been so amazing to see you guys connect and interact with our messages from tonight and let's just find where we got to i'd like to read out these ones andy McHugh said smile before christmas and i will say it is one of my least favorite behavior management techniques when people talk about don't smile till Christmas because we are talking about behavior management through fear. And as we know, we can't learn if we're in a state of fear. We Well, we can learn a little bit, I guess. What we can't do is we, we learn better in a state of psychological safety. So if anyone is saying to you, don't smile till Christmas, agree with me, agree with Andy McHugh on Twitter, smile before Christmas. We had one, a message from June who said, Make sure the classroom is a safe, boundaried space to learn in. Like them as your default setting and be predictable. Now that ties back into some of the things we said about trauma, particularly early childhood trauma. They need a place of safety to feel safe. And for some of the children you are interacting with, unpredictability and not trusting adults and not trusting their environment can really shut down their 
um, learning and it can fire off those levels of cortisol and it can make it incredibly difficult. Now we had another one here from John Kinsella who said, be friendly and approachable, particularly one-to-one on the doors, in corridors and on duty. Then when in class, be academic, have high expectations and stick to the rules. I would agree. I'm not advocating in any way that we should be inside our classrooms being uh, cuddly, be throwing away the rule book. In fact, it is the rule book that in a lot of these places is providing safety and stability. And I think that came through with a lot of the comments that we've had on Twitter about the show tonight. Um, we've had one from there from Sophie G saying, speaking to them outside lesson, we know from the research, if you missed it earlier, you know, listen back to the episode. It'll be on Podbean. It'll be on uh, iTunes. It'll be on Spotify. It'll be on, of course, Teachers um, ttradio.org slash listen back and you can hear some of that research and I will try and send out a link to a lot of it um, so that we can follow it along um, we had Brent Poland who said apologize for your mistakes genuinely like them uh, despite their faults don't hold grudges remember teenager is borderline remember the teenager is borderline paranoid it's all about them so reassure them all the time eat lunch in the canteen above all be consistent with them they respect strength now i'm picking a few of the bits there we have seen we said that teacher pleasing behavior was tied into caring about them and it was tied into um, going above and beyond for them so those are things that we can do and of course we know that the fear is a problem uh, we've had Bath Bibliophile who's commented in, and this is an interesting one. So comment if you can, if you're listening live. It says share nu- little nuggets of info about things you like and about family if you want to. They say I talk about my children a bit. Now people are divided on this, and certainly <coughs> as the comments have come in, occasional parts of this about sharing your life have have, have been mentioned. I would say that we are still supposed to be role modelling. And when we are talking about behavior, we have to remember those mirror neurons that when they see something, their brain thinks they are doing it. And so that means if when we are behaving in class, if we are shouting at someone, then children are learning that behavior. If you don't believe me that children are good mimics, spend some time with my toddlers and (laughs) they will tear you to shreds with impressions of you in a kind way. But they, you know, they will embarrass you with it. And what we see we do and so i think some of that sharing when we talk about it we need to make sure we are still modeling our expectations for them and the reality is i'm sorry listeners that we want them to be better than you i want the children in my class to be better than i was when i was their age to make better choices to i guess not make the same mistakes i made bov on twitter Uh, says, uh, treat them like human beings. How do you start to build good relationships with an adult? Start there. And I think for me, that is a fabulous place for us to start wrapping up the show, of course. Because when we started, I talked a little bit about using a basis for this show of how to win friends and influence people. And it did not take me that much work to find the evidence and to find the anecdotes from you as teachers that 
how to win kids and influence pupils was not far away from how we do it with each other. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy. I find it incredibly difficult. I find it incredibly difficult to make friends. So it's no wonder I find it incredibly difficult to make uh, positive relationships with students. But it is possible. And there are ways we can do it. And I think if we reflect back on those top tips, and I think for me, one of the things that was most telling for me, most powerful for me, was that research that we found about teacher-pleasing behaviour. And remember, so it was from 1995, and it was Gregory Montevallo, Montalvo and Teresa Rodell, and they found when interviewing groups of high school school students about teacher-pleasing behaviour that if you go out of your way, if you build their confidence, if you respect and trust them and you don't overwhelm them, you will see the quality of their work improve. Now, if you've enjoyed this show, you can listen back on ttradio.org to all of our shows. And in fact, if you go to the listen back button up on the top, you'll be able to click into the search bar and you can type in there any keywords you want. It might be behavior. It might be ECT if you're an early careers teacher. It might be pastoral or leadership. And you can find those episodes that most link to the kind of content you want. Of course, you can find us on Twitter at ttradio.org. Oh no, at TT Radio 2022. And of course, you can find us on Spotify. Give us a follow, give us a review, five stars, please, if you can. Find us on iTunes, give us a review on there as well. If you're a listener, if you're a long time listener and you haven't yet reviewed Teachers Talk Radio on iTunes, get on there and click those five stars and boost us up the charts. We'll be number one by Christmas. And of course, you can find me at Lesson Copy on Twitter as well, where I'll share some of these notes. Now, a lot of it, I should give a big shout out to the American Psychological Association and their report on improving students' relationships with teachers to provide essential support for learning, where a lot of the research I have found has been tied together. If you're uh, looking for something to do this week, of course, you can find our Twitter spaces where you can interact and call in live as well and you can join us and of course more live shows on the podbean app thank you for being here tonight i will say nostar from the twilight show here in wales that's good night for those of you listening internationally thanks for calling in thanks for tweeting thanks for texting good night and we'll see you next time You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.